The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. This episode features my conversation with Doug Phillips, partner and realtor with Shul & Associates Real Estate, a firm in California's Central Valley specializing in the agricultural land market. We discuss the farm and dairy sector and its response to the COVID-19 pandemic, along with opportunities and challenges faced by investors eyeing the market. Phillips also outlines how technology is an essential tool for many operators in boosting efficiencies and profit margins. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Happy to be here. According, if my research is correct, uh, it said you grew up in the fruit packing business and, and Shula specialized in dairies and farmland for some 36 years, I believe. How did, how did you get started in this particular sector of CRE and what really drew, drew you to it? Yeah, good question. So I grew up here in Central California. My family's been farming for several generations, um, a fruit and citrus operation. Um, so that's my background. Um, I worked in the family and farming for several years outside of college um, and then made a little shift into real estate about 12 years ago. Um, I'd always in, been interested in the industry. Um, and I thought with my background, um, relationships, and education in ag, that the ag real estate sector would be a great fit. So I uh, reached out to the team at Shul and Associates, and the rest is history. Like you mentioned, you've been with with that uh, with the team for 12 years. Um, can you share how the sector has changed in terms of the analysis and valuations or the, the types of investors? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there is a very diverse a pool of buyers out there uh, that look at this sector of commercial real estate. So um, from the outside looking in, people might see it as a small, um, old-fashioned industry, um, when in reality, it's quite the opposite. Um, it's dynamic. It's changing. Uh, there is a, a lot of uh, excitement and activity within the sector. Um, our, you know, the the typical buyer, you know, maybe 50 years ago, you know, might have been the neighbor down the street, whereas now... Um, it could be a large institutional fund um, from across from around the world. Um, so it's really changed the, um, the it's changed the dynamic of where the market is headed and what types of things buyers are looking for. And understanding that the industry has been somewhat professionalized, I would, I would say, with you know going from the the kind of uh, word of mouth neighborhood type transaction to something more a part of the global economy. Um, you know what, what's been key to to adapting and, and staying competitive in an environment like that? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it's uh, ag's always been extremely relationship-based and it will continue to be so. So uh, from that standpoint, you know, the local feet on the ground uh, brokers uh, that have those relationships with those local growers and dairymen and processors um, are going to continue to build on those relationships and, you know, and, and have the trust uh, from all those clients in order to work with, you know, some, you know, a lot of, a lot of local farmers are skeptical of, of maybe a big buyer or a institutional fund coming in. Right. So it's about establishing that layer of trust 
um, that you've worked on and our company has worked on for you know 35 years um, to bridge that gap um, and bring buyers and sellers together uh, for a win-win scenario. Gotcha. And uh, we'd be remiss if you went more than three or four minutes without mentioning um, COVID. So, you know, that's obviously been the talk of 2020. Um, and with all the, the, the human, economic, social struggles, um, how has the pandemic affected uh, the CRE market inland in agriculture? You know, initially in that March, April time, there was probably some hesitation from buyers and sellers, um, you know, just due to global uncertainty. I mean, that was true across any industry. Um, you know, that first shutdown was unprecedented and gave everyone reason to pause. Nobody, nobody really knew how long it was going to last, what effects might be, you know, deals that were in process um, might have seen some delays in closings, you know, with banks, appraisers, title companies, escrow companies, all adjusting to right working remotely. Um, but everything's kind of caught back up um, from the transactional side to where I would say it's pretty much back to normal. Um, on the operation side of agriculture, you know, growers and producers, business never really stopped or slowed down. Um, you know, ag's probably one of the most essential businesses out there with food production and processing. It's not really possible for them to flip a switch um, and shut down their operation for a month or two just to, you know, take a pause and and uh, and send everyone home, right? You can't tell a tree to stop growing or a crop to stop maturing or a cow to stop making milk. Um, so that never really slowed down. Processors, you know, now have safety protocols in place, um, but capacity on that end's pretty much back to full speed. Now, regarding the pandemic's effect on pricing, you know, we haven't really seen any big adjustments. Um, you know, all ag properties produce a commodity, which have their own market. Uh, many of those commodities were, you know, drastically impacted in the short term. Dairies are a great example. The price of milk really dropped initially. Schools were closed. You know, every kid gets a carton of milk every day at school. Um, restaurants were closed. You know, that's butter and cheese production has really gone down quite a bit. Um, so that really affected things like dairy pricing. You know, on the flip side, um, you know, you've got fruit and vegetable crops, you know, had the opposite effect. Consumer demand um, for healthy products instantly increased. Shoppers were staying home, trending towards health conscious buying decisions. You know, if, I, I don't know if in your grocery stores, but in ours, the produce section was empty for weeks. Um, it was hard to find things. So, you know, the uh, there was quite a bit of uh, volatility, I guess, on the commodity side. But the value of the real estate that those commodities were produced on weren't really impacted in ways that weren't already in place, you know, pre-pandemic. Ag real estate's interesting in that it doesn't really see the swift you know, reactionary adjustments to pricing that other sectors, such as commercial and residential, see. Um, it usually takes, I'm going to say, at least two production cycles before we really start to see values adjust um, due to the commodity market. So, you know, example right now is the almond industry. We've, we, we we're seeing low crop pricing for the 2020 crop. Um, you know, pricing has historically been in the two to three dollars a pound. It's now in the you know dollar fifty to dollar seventy range. If that trend continues, well, then we might see some pricing adjustments on almond orchards. But right now, we're seeing it still continue to be strong. So it kind of gives you an example of what kind of time frame that looks at for to, before we really start to see adjustments. And even the pandemic didn't really change that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, it's not not that that's it's not insulated from the effects of you know a once in a century pandemic, but you know, there's no real alternative besides, like you said, uh, you know, taking care of the cows, let the tree grows and, and, and getting things to market. Yeah. I mean, it works got to get done. And yeah, that's also, it's, it's a commodity that has a longer leash to it than say, you know, the, the big talk about office is that everybody's going to be afraid of being in downtown New York or downtown San Francisco. 
well, you know, uh, a, a dairy farm is not going to, I can't imagine a dairy farm dropping, you know, to 30% of what it was worth two or three years ago. I don't know if that's even a possibility. Yeah. And they can't work from home, right? I mean, they've yeah, got to yeah. get out there and get the work done. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess, you know, looking ahead a year, 18 months, do you see anything, any big changes in the market or will it be just kind of a, a slow return to quote unquote normal if that's possible? Yeah, I see things on the ag side staying the course. Um, we're going to continue to see strong demand uh, for quality properties in desirable locations. Um, you know, the three most important things in any kind of real estate is location, location, location. On ag, what that means is, you know, quality soil and quality water. Um, water supply is going to continue to be a big driver for value. So in high production areas with irrigated uh, lands, as opposed to, you know, dry farmed or stuff that's just irrigated via rainfall. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to see trending increase in values on properties that have a solid water supply, um, or what they would call two sources of water, right? You have access to wells to get groundwater and a second source, which would be from canals, um, irrigation districts, uh, rivers, um, you know, that's going to continue to see demand and most likely appreciation of value on those types of properties. Um, but again, it's not as nearly as reactionary as other ones. So because of this, um, you know, sometimes we actually see a little bit of increase in demand due to some fluctuation in other sectors, such as the stock market. Um, you know, this year saw some very big swings on Wall Street. Um, investors, you know, not, not very few investors like those wild rides of peaks and valleys. Um, so they often turn to the stability of farmland as a bit of a safe haven. Um, and you see that in times of volatility like this. So. Um, you know, another trend that continues to gain steam with buyers and existing farmers is kind of this idea of sustainability. Um, examples, you know, regenerative ag with cover crops, conservation tillage or no-till, um, and integrated pest management. You see some water use efficiencies, precision irrigation. You know, a lot of technology with many crops on the on the irrigation side is through drip irrigation, uh, which you know literally means the crops are watered drop by drop. Um, with berry drip irrigation, you're seeing a lot of stuff um, with, with zero ev loss to evaporation. So again, you're seeing some really uh, technical advances there, which is, you know, again, it's going to continue to add value to those high value properties, um, energy efficiency, conservation, solar power. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, on the animal agriculture side, you've got methane digesters. So they're taking the animal waste, converting it into methane. Um, and either using that on their own facility for energy generation or, or, or scrubbing it and put it back in the pipeline and selling it to utility companies. So um, not only is it, you know, achieving that goal of sustainability, but I think most importantly, it's helping the bottom line. Um, it's another income source and a way to reduce costs. Yeah. And mentioning these advances, I think the average person, maybe not, maybe the average person outside of real estate thinks of, of agriculture as a very analog industry where, you know, it's a farmer going out into his field, but um, can, you, can you speak about the importance of technological advancements and how that can maintain and grow value within the industry? Yeah. And Nick, I, I think you're right. I think the average person sees the farmer on, on the tractor and overalls. Um, and, and, you know, some, there's a little bit of truth to that. You know, farming has historically lagged when it comes to technology advances um, in hardware and software, um, but that's quickly changing. And there's actually several tech companies that are and startups that are solely focused on this space um, because they see so much opportunity, you know, many examples, but, you know, automation in the field will continue to improve those efficiencies. 
Um, one such company is called Gus. It's here in Central California, G-U-S-S, uh, producing fully autonomous orchard spraying equipment. Um, there, you know, there's been GPS-assisted tractors and, and and guided equipment for for quite a long time, several decades. But Gus is exciting, is that you know they're producing some extremely precise um, sprayers for orchards and vineyards, um, where it's you know precision is extremely important, and the cost of air is expensive, right? If that thing's off by a couple inches in one direction, it can be catastrophic um, for the orchard and the equipment. Um, so you know, as tools like these continue to be put into place, um, you know, you'll see costs come down quite a bit. And although they're expensive, you know, the savings on labor um, and the liability that comes with labor um, really begins to make up for that initial cost. Other examples, you know, drone and satellite imagery, um, huge advances, um, obviously on the consumer side, right? DJI and some of these big companies. I mean, the, the, the stuff that we can hold in the palm of our hands now is just incredible, but uh, there's some professional level tools out there that the growers are using. Um, you know, whether it's mapping uh, or just aerial imagery, um, commodity uh, industries are using this uh, for crop projection estimates, on-farm water use. Uh, so it's just the list goes on and on. And that, that implementation is, is inevitable um, with the rising costs of energy, of labor um, and market disruptions. You know, it forces all these growers and ranchers and dairymen to look at all these uh, different options. Um, cause that can often be what makes the difference between profit and loss as those margins become thin. Um, you know, and from a real estate standpoint, you know, if, if you got a buyer who's looking at some property, there's some really, uh, interesting things out there on the due diligence side, right? So there's, uh, some software companies out there, one such called Aqua Oso, A U or A Q U A O S O. Um, you know, they've consolidated water data from many different sources and overlaid it on, um, satellite imagery to allow buyers to look at what the water situation is going to be on a specific property. Um, and then they have certain levels of, of uh, reports that you can buy from them, which um, I mean, they'll do a full analysis. Um, and not only are, are buyers using this, you're seeing uh, lending institution, insurance companies, appraisers um, using things like this to evaluate risk uh, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so important. I think that kind of my, my next question was kind of about factoring in environmental challenges that you see down the road, whether it's a water supply that'll be challenging in 50 years, you know, how do you, how do those issues factor into pricing? And it sounds like um, you talk to these guys who have a bunch of data <laughs> on it and they can, they can kind of figure out, uh, you know, they can forecast. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Because uh, if you, you know, plant a crop in the ground, um, you know, assuming it's a permanent crop, like a tree or a vine, um, you know, that thing needs to have water, a consistent supply for, you know, 50 to a hundred years. Um, if, so you've got to really trust, uh, in these companies that are advising you, um, as far as, you know, what you anticipate that outlook to be. So, um, yeah, it's, it's becoming more and more important, uh, for everyone to use those services. As somebody who specializes in um, the ag sector, do you see any opportunities that are available to professionals that might be overlooked by some others in the industry? Yeah. Um, you know, something new that's popped up on the land sector, uh, real estate, uh, is crowdfunding. There's been several startups which have focused on buying existing agricultural opportunities, uh, like, a you know, buying a almond orchard, for example. Um, you know, companies such as, you know, Farm Together, Farm Funder, Acre Trader. 
Um, they've all opened up opportunities for you and me to own a small slice of a, of a farm. Um, hmm. Now, obviously, this brings up a whole new pool of buyers who might have been priced out of, of investing in ag real estate. You know, and this also, on the flip side, opens up some opportunity for landowners. You know, these investment companies usually need on-site farm managers um, so they can flip their role from a landowner to a manager um, and manage that property for someone who's buying their ranch. You know, kind of allows the seller to cash out um, of their land while still maintaining some income. Um, and they can often grow with that company as that company purchases other opportunities that manager can turn around and, uh, you know, uh, continue to grow with them. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Now, you know, this type of investing has a little bit of downfalls. The returns can be a little watered down as there's additional layers of management. But, um, you know, that kind of comes with the territory. Um, yeah. I mean, we can primarily smaller operators like family farms or is yeah it so that's usually on smaller uh you know you know uh, the the larger opportunities uh you know are going to generate interest from you know large investment groups um which would mm-hmm. consist of you know hedge funds institutional investors pension funds insurance companies endowment funds um now there's always been investment money in ag but we've recently seen some new groups come into the space um you know one of the tough parts for some of these new investors um is sourcing properties which are large enough to, to make the numbers work. Uh, there just aren't often that many opportunities. So when they do come up, you know, it's important to uh, have your team in place and so that you're ready to go. You know, you, you've got your farm manager, your water consultants, your soil consultants, your, you know, your bankers, your uh, insurance all lined up so that once, because if, if you sit and sit and wait, you're, you're going to miss the boat almost every time. Mm-hmm. One other interesting thing that, Sometimes uh, people might miss, uh, you know, there can be some unique tax benefits um, to farmland that buyers might be unaware of. You know, land itself is non-depreciable, but if you have a highly improved property, right, an orchard, a vineyard, a dairy, a processing facility, the depreciation schedule for those improvements can often be much quicker than residential homes or apartments or commercial buildings. Um, Now, there also can be some opportunity for accelerated depreciation, Um, really depends on your situation. Full disclaimer, I'm not a tax advisor, um, but, you know, there are CPAs who do specialize in that area. Um, so it's important to make sure your team is properly educated. But it, it's it's often an overlooked uh, savings that is can often make make the break between a, a good investment or a great investment. And maybe for those that are familiar with CRE, but not too familiar with land, are there any unique challenges or obstacles that are kind of inherent in in the market sector? You know, like like everything, there's going to be there's going to con- continue to be market fluctuations, you know, when it comes to the crops that are generated, um, you know, unforeseen events, weather, food safety issues, pandemics, political events, uh, nutritional fads, um, they're completely out of your control and they have a drastic effect on your bottom line. Um, it can work the opposite way. Uh, you know, all those, all those actions can have an equal and opposite reaction. Example, if you have a huge weather event in Florida, freeze or a hurricane that can wipe out let's say the citrus industry for the year well the industries the citrus in california and texas is now going to be more in demand um so it kind of you know you know you've got the trendy fad right now of plant-based diets you know less beef dairy egg consumption that's obviously going to be made up from somewhere else right people aren't eating less they're just shifting what they're eating um milk alternatives right less milk demand but you have almond milk oat milk soy milk um, you just see all these other alternatives out there that I think if someone's, you know, privy to 
where the trends are headed, um, you know, you can often take advantage of some of those trends. Um, but it's just something that you need to be aware of that things that are out of your control can often dictate where, where your bottom line goes. Um, now there's some ways to help mitigate that risk. Um, crops can be contracted. So your pricing is locked in. That really depends on what type of crop, um, you know, row crops, you know, some of the typical Midwestern corn, soybeans, you know, you have futures markets, um, you know, on the you know, other crops, wine grapes and whatnot are often contracted. Um, you know, so if you know what your costs are to grow and you have your price locked in, you know, you can usually have a pretty good idea of what your profit's going to be um, to help mitigate some risk. There's also crop insurance policies. Some of it's government backed, some of it's private. Um, that helps recruit recoup any losses um, due to production or market disruption. So there's ways to mitigate some of that risk. But I think at the end of the day, you know, it's it's not just a cap rate investment um, where you, you get a check in the mailbox. Um, now you can go down that path and, and rent out the land. Uh, you're t historically going to have pretty low cap rates um, in farmland. It's in the, for sure in the single digits and usually just a couple percent. Um, so you can go down that road, but that's usually not why people get into it. Um, so they, they, you know, they like to operate um, and, and, you know, risk versus reward and often see the reward from the income those crops generate. Out of curiosity with, um, you know, you always notice when you're walking down the grocery aisle, you see, like you said, these fad, these fad products that are become popular, popular in general, does that happen? Like you said, in a two or three cycle period, or is it, or is it a, a, a surprisingly reactive market or, you know, how do they how does the market in general react to increased demand in a niche product? Yeah, you know, it's it, it takes time. Um, again, these are all, you know, uh, naturally produced and grown products. Um, you know, most of them take years to come into production. Um, it's it, it's it's hard to move uh, a, a market quickly. Now, you know, the fads come and go and and, you know, you see uh, growers and and processors, you know, that try to capitalize and take advantage of those trends. Um, but it, it just takes time. Um, it, it takes years. Now, you know, it, it does shift, though. Um, an example is, uh, you know, on, on the citrus industry, you know, um, when I was growing up and when you were growing up, you had navel oranges if you wanted an orange. Well, now um, everyone has, you know, small mandarins, right? And the two big players, you got cuties and halos. Um you know, you know, my children and, and, you know, children in, in, in this generation, that's what they're going to know. Um, so it, now there's still navels out there and they're still growing, but it's just, that's a small example of, of how a trend um, towards an easy peel, you know, small Mandarin um, has become the staple of the citrus industry. Yeah. That's interesting. Taking a step back and looking at, at your firm, um, you know, in, in a market full of, of big fish and, and institutional investors, um, you know, you guys are relatively modestly sized. What's your key to staying competitive as a family-run firm among uh, among kind of the, the larger players? Yeah, you know, although the ag space is what I would say is quite large and active, um, it's still considered a, a, a niche market when in the world of commercial real estate. You know, and on the commercial side, you've got, you know, huge global brokerage companies out there, you know, CBRE, Cushman and Wakefield, Collier's, Newmark, Marcus and Millichap. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And then followed by that is an even bigger list of regional um, commercial real estate companies. But there's not really any large national, international company that dominates the ag real estate space. Um, you know, there's some regional companies like ours that, that cover, you know, wide areas, you know, multiple states um, and, and broad industries. 
Um, but a lot of it's still made up from small local brokers, you know, one, two, five man shops that, um, you know, have one office and, and that's just how it's always been. And that's just how they are. Right. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, farmers very relationship based. They would prefer to work with brokers they've known a long time, myself included. And a lot of our agents, you know, come from a farming background. Um, they grew up in that area where their office is. So they just, you know, not only do they have the relationship, they're, you know, generations above them, new generations above their clients. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's a tight group. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for a big national company to, 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 to come in. Now there's some, there's some, definitely some that are rising, um, but it's, it's gotta be done the right way. Um, you know, and, and I think a, a key to remaining competitive, uh, is to, you know, just be really involved in the industry. Um, you know, there's tons of opportunities to stay current and, and involved in all this. An example, um, global ag investing, global ag investing, a, a, an organization with puts on, puts on lots of seminars, um, events, conferences, their flagship one is in New York every April. Obviously, it didn't happen this April. Um, and then they have several smaller events um, throughout the world, you know, and it's it's geared towards those uh, large land investors and uh, and farm managers. And it kind of brings everyone together. So, you know, going to things like that, you know, it just helps to continue to build that network. You know, for smaller buyers, sellers and brokers, there's a lot of commodity specific trade organizations out there which, which host their own events and conferences. Um, the, the almond conference is a, a great example it brings together you know growers processors you know equipment manufacturers buyers sellers bankers i mean the list goes on you know it's events like that where relationships are really developed and strengthened um, and it allows you know firms like ours to just gain insights as to trends and, and outlooks so that we can pass that on to our clients because they do turn to us uh, with, with questions and they look for guidance and advice you know and i i think lastly uh, having a strong web and social media presence, you know, really allows any size firm to be able to compete. Um, perception is reality. So if a very small one to two person company can invest the time and resources into putting together a sharp and professional appearance, you can certainly gain some credibility within, within the investment world. Uh, now it always has to be backed up with, you know, good performance, good listings, you know, but at least you're off on the right foot with a good first impression. So, you know, I think there's ways to remain competitive. Yeah. And, and I think no matter what business you're in, uh, in real estate, it's always going to be relationship based and it's just, you know, maybe one sector more so than the other, but, uh, correct. It, it all comes down to, to who, you know, and, and, and what you can do and, and what you can do to help somebody. Correct. My last question is a bit of an open-ended question. What's something about the agricultural real estate market that would surprise people that aren't familiar with it? You know, I'd probably say that it doesn't really follow the typical trends. You know, you'll see a lot. Of, you'll see, you might see an article or hear a, a, a news bite about how you know residential real estate is doing this, commercial real estate is doing this. You know, that ag doesn't follow those those trends. You know, when the stock market rises and falls or interest rates change, there's not really a direct correlation to farmland values. Now, it doesn't. I wouldn't call it an alternative investment, um, but it certainly provides a nice option to diversify a portfolio, provides balance. Um, you know, investing in farmland is becoming more and more popular and maybe even trendy in some circles. The traditional farmers an aging demographic. So there's going to be con continue to be opportunities to enter the space, you know, being teed up and, and, and ready to pounce uh, is going to be important because it, it is a competitive environment. Great. And, and I think at a, at a time like this with, with volatility and the instability out there, diversification is always a good thing. Definitely. 
Great. Well, uh, Doug Phillips with, with Shul Associates, I, I certainly appreciate your time and, and thank you for joining uh, the Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate. 